This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. I'm Roxanne Cody, and this is Just the Right Book Shorts. I am over the moon today that we are joined by Gilbert Cruz, who's the managing editor of the New York Times Book Review. And he has, he was a culture editor at the New York Times. He was a TV editor. He started at the Tuscaloosa News in Alabama, but on the way he stopped at Entertainment Weekly, Time Magazine, New York Magazine. But lucky for all of us, he's now at the New York Times Book Review. And just last week, the New York Times Book Review announced their top 10 books, which we as booksellers like cannot wait for. We we take bets on what books are going to be there. Readers are thrilled. We're all thrilled. So the idea of Gilbert taking the time to join us on Just the Right Book is just a thrill. Gilbert, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I love to talk about books with uh, with booksellers uh, in particular, because I feel like they have their, you know, on the front lines perspective of what readers are interested in. Uh, we do. A lot of times we see the hype and then readers come in and they're like, yeah, we didn't buy that. <laughs> we didn't buy that story. Great. I can't wait to hear which one of these books they don't buy. <laughs> I'll let you know. I'll let okay. you know. So, Gilbert, obviously, there are a gazillion books published a year. And you also list the 100 best books, which came out uh, a couple of weeks ago. But whittling it down to 10 sounds near impossible to do. So how do you all manage to do that? Sure. It is near impossible. I agree. Somehow we do it every year by fiction, by nonfiction. I'll give you a little insight into the process. So we have a group of editors whose job it is to read months ahead before books come out. I assume it's it's the same at, at with booksellers at various bookstores and, and other places that care about books. They're reading ahead and they're keeping an eye out in addition to their day jobs, which is reading galleys, deciding which books we should review. If we are going to review a book, who should review that book, given that most of the writers who write for the book review are outside contributors. On top of that, they're constantly keeping their eye out for books that just rise above. And that can mean a lot of different things. You know, if it's a nonfiction book, is there information to hear that's never been presented before or information that's been presented before, but in a radical new way? If it's fiction, did it make me feel? Did it move me? Does it have sweep? Is it ambitious? So many different factors. Those are individual factors. They, they, they recommend this to the group. And starting at about the spring, we meet monthly. And mm. we all read the books beforehand. That it, we, we decide what books we're going to read in advance. At this month's meeting, we're going to read these four books. And then we're going to talk about it over two hours at this month's meeting. We do that for a while. We try to weed out books so that the best ones are making it through the process. And then once the fall hits, it turns into a weekly process in which we meet for anywhere from one to two hours every single week. 
agreeing beforehand on what two to three books we're going to read over the weekend. These are meetings that usually are on Thursdays. And then we debate. You know, someone has nominated the book. They stump for the book. Sometimes someone writes down a a statement in favor of the book, a little speech. Sometimes (laughs) people do it extemporaneously. But someone has to say, this is what this book is. This is what it's about. And this is why I think it's great. And then the debate and the discussion sort of takes off from there. And by the time mid-October rolls around, and again, we can settle this process up by late October because we're always reading ahead. So we're not missing anything coming out at the end of the year. By the time mid-October comes around, we're taking, we're taking votes. We're seeing you know, where the energy is, and then we're having further debates based on that information. There's a final vote. It's a group process. It's not me as the editor of the book review or me and two other editors picking these books. It's really about a dozen editors coming to a, a, a consensus on what we think, as a publication, the best books of the year are. And everyone that is part of that process has books that they wish had made it. Some people dislike books that end up on the top 10 list. But it, I think this is, the, this is the way to do it. It is... It, it reflects sort of the sensibility mm. of a group of readers whose job it is to read widely and, and read incessantly. So I, I have a couple of questions. I mean, I just love this idea. Well, one day I'm going to campaign to be on this on this committee as a bookseller. <laughs> but so how many books start at the top of the filter when you start in the spring? Are there 200 books, 100 books? Um. No, not, not, it doesn't necessarily work that way because we could never go through 200 books and, and make an assessment, right? That's it is, what I it, was curious about. Yeah, it's really, so just to take a step back, the book review reviews between outside contributors and our staff critics about 15 to 1600 books a year. Right. If you divide that by 52 is about 30 books a week, give or take, depending on the week. So that's fifteen to 1,600 books a year, which means that we considered more than that. There are books that we looked at that we decided not to review. So let's say past 2,000 books we're looking at over the course of a year. In order for this process to work, we feel like a, a majority of people who are in the discussion have to have read the book. So right. really what we're doing, individual editors are, are nominating what they think are the standouts amongst the pile of books that they're looking at. So we have to... The first meeting, we're probably looking at, you know, four, five, six books. Those are just the books that have come out between right. the beginning of the year and March or April or whenever it is that we start that process. And then every meeting, we discuss new books and hopefully we take some books out and we're adding books in. If we were just constantly adding books and not taking any out, we would be royally in trouble when the fall when the fall rolled around. Yeah. And, and Gilbert... Just as an aside, and we could probably have another podcast about this, but I was reminded the other day that it's still a data point that about 50% of the American reading public read only one book a year. Mm -hmm. I saw that. Yeah, that was the national, the NEA put, put out a, the results of a survey, I think they take every five years, maybe. Yeah. And, And so... Maybe for another podcast, but a quick question would be, to what extent when you pick the books to be reviewed, are you thinking about expanding the reading market? 
Yeah. You're talking about uh, reviews, not the yeah, top 10 yeah. process now, not right? Not the top 10. You know, I've been in this job a year, about a year and a half, a little less than a year and a half. And and one of the things I thought when I joined that we needed to to do more of, and, and we've always done it, is do this very thing, is, is try to expand yeah. by expanding the types of books that we cover and the way that we cover books. Ideally, we would expand the number of people that want to read about books, certainly in the New York Times, but maybe overall. I don't know if us writing about a certain type of book will convince a person who will never read a book to pick up a book. Mm-hmm. But what we want to do is for the people who care about books, and there's still a lot of people in America who read at yeah. least one book a year, which is nothing to sniff at. For those people, how can we be a better guide to them about what books to read? There are lots of touch points in a reader's life when it comes to helping solve this problem. People in their family recommend books to them. If they go to a great bookstore like yours, you'll have people that are hand-selling them books you know, on the store floor. And maybe, just maybe, the big, fancy New York Times can, can write about books in a way that will allow people to feel that those books are for them. There's a difference between writing a lot of reviews of books, which is our primary job and responsibility, and thinking about how to reach readers who would never think about reading the New York Times when they're trying to figure out what book to read next. And that's something that we hope to work on over the next few years. Yeah. And I can sense it happening. And I'm delighted to see that as part of the trend. And maybe uh, we'll have you back on and talk about that a little bit more. But right now, drum roll, drum roll. Some people <laughs> listening might not have picked this up. So what are the top 10 books of the year? Okay, there are 10, so this is going to take a minute. I'll go fiction, then nonfiction. So we have The Bee Sting by Paul Murray, Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, North Woods by Daniel Mason, Eastbound by Mylis de Keringal, and The Fraud by Zadie Smith. Those are our five fiction picks. Our five nonfiction picks are Master Slave Husband Wife by Ilyan Wu, the Best Minds by Jonathan Rosen, Some People Need Killing by Patricia Evangelista, Fireweather by John Valiant, and Bottoms Up in the Devil Laughs by Carrie Howley. Okay, which ones were you super excited about that you want to talk a little bit more about? So I'd like to say I'm excited about all of them, but well, I'm not going to- that's okay. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's just take that as a given. <laughs> let's take that as a given. They're all great. But um, there are there are definitely a couple that 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 sort of lodged themselves uh, in my mind and in my heart. The first one is the Bee Sting. It is the last of the ten that I read. This is a, a novel by the Irish writer Paul Murray. It was one of the shortlist finalists for the Booker Prize. In the end, another author with the name Paul ended up winning winning that prize a couple weeks ago. But this is. Listeners might be familiar with Paul Murray. He wrote a book many years ago called Skippy Dies. Mm. And this one is about four members of this family in a small Irish town. When we meet them, they are dealing with sort of plummeting fortunes. They've been a successful family for a while. The father inherited 
a family car dealership, but it's the 2008 financial crisis, and they are floundering financially, emotionally, in all sorts of ways. And as the book starts, each family member gets their own section, and you really get an amazing look into the the lives, the interior lives of of the the young son, you know, sort of the tween son, the daughter about to go to college, the mother who's a great beauty but who doesn't know what her life has turned into. And when we first meet him, the father, who, who seems like a real pushover. And they each get their own sections and their lives deepen and the connections between each of them deepen. And it's, it's sort of warm. It's mm. moving. It's sad. I think it's extremely emotionally intelligent. You really get invested in each of the characters. You know, several of us on the book review said that whenever we would put this book down, it was not an exaggeration to say that we just, we were wondering what these people were doing. We just wanted to get, get back into the book. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. I just, I could, I, I blew through it and it's a long book, about 600 yeah, it's pages. It's big. It's big. And, you know, Gilbert, to the point that we were joking about in the beginning, the books that, you know, a customer might come in and say, I don't think so. One of the things I've learned in almost 35 years of book selling is it is often the character more than the narrative that drives a stickiness and passion by the reader because they they connect to one character or another feel unusually sympathetic or something so and and the beasting is doing fabulously well in the bookstore our booksellers love it so i think that that one's going to have a lot of legs for a super long time yeah, I, I think you're right. It is. This is a book about character. Primarily, there are, you know, a lot of plot happens. Some of it quite dramatic, maybe overly dramatic, in the opinion of, of some of some editors here. But uh, it is those four characters: PJ, Cass, uh, and uh, and the parents whose names I forget. Uh, who who I really just attached myself to. Um, and I think it is one of the books that will probably be recommending the most going into the holiday season. Great. How about another one? So I'll switch over to nonfiction for the moment and talk about Fireweather by John Valiant. This is the story at its heart of the 2016 Fort McMurray wildfire. Fort McMurray, sort of this oil boomtown in Alberta, Canada that sprung up out of the wilderness a long time ago when they discovered the oil sands, the tar sands underneath this amazing um, reserve of, of petroleum, essentially, underneath the ground. So this boomtown sprung up. They're bringing oil out of the ground. And there's a giant wildfire that destroys a large segment of the town. And I think alone, on its face, that is a great story because the author gives you sort of a beat-by-beat, moment-by-moment mm. account of how the fire, which he almost personifies, is moving through Fort McMurray. But the thing that deepens it and complexifies the book is that it's not just about the wildfire. It's about the history of, of, of oil extraction in Canada and North America. And it's about the history of climate change science. And the great irony of this book is that this town that has made its bones on taking oil out of the earth and for many people, adding to the worsening effects of climate change itself becomes the victim of mm. climate change wildfires, which are becoming 
more and more prevalent every year and every summer in Canada. A bunch of us were reading this book at the book review in New York City this summer when the smoke from the wildfires were coming down and turned the skies orange. It was a real surreal experience to, to read this book while that was happening. And it's just, it's, it's sort of perverse almost to say that this is an exciting book because it's about something that is depressing and, and scary, but the author writes with such energy and such verve uh, and balances these the, the three legs, these three parts of the structure so well that we are all just blown over by it. All right. You, you won me over on that one. Okay. Great. So <laughs> one book uh, that I'm going to talk about that's on your list. Yes. That I adored was Master Slave, Husband, Wife. And I had interviewed Elon Wu for the podcast, but for our listeners that might not know this story, it's this almost unbelievable story of Ellen Craft and her husband, Will Craft, two enslaved people who escape. And Ellen disguises as a white, kind of frail, almost disabled, wealthy man. And her husband, who isn't disguised as a slave, is on this escape from slavery, actually take a public train. <laughs> you know, the trains are relatively new. This is about 18, I think, 48. And they work their way north through harrowing. I mean, I don't even know. You, you're sitting there like a nervous wreck reading the story. They first are in Philadelphia. Then they land in Boston for a while. They end up in New York. They end up being particularly William a renowned speaker, but hearing Elon Wu does an incredible job of putting you, you know, you're a fly on the wall to a story that you cannot believe even happened. So the, what you learn about abolition and the state of abolitionists, even in the North, what you learn about the Fugitive Slave Act that was passed during this time where someone could bring somebody back, even from Philadelphia, back to their enslavers. I, I just think it's an important book that we all should read, and it reads like fiction. So if you want fast-paced attachment to character, you get that. If you want education, you get that also. So I was thrilled that that was on your list. It was a book that so many people at the book review were excited about, and and it really ran the gauntlet. I mean, it came out in January, and and you know when a book comes out that early, that's tough. It has to <laughs> it has to last through conversation after conversation throughout the course of the year. You know, throughout ten months essentially, and um, it just it has it all. I mean, the the amount of historical detail that Wu is able to to sort of put into the book to give it so much texture. It was just so impressive imagining the amount of research that she had to do to really give you a sense of during the first part of their journey, the sights, the smells, the sounds, what was going on in all the various towns that they that they went through. It also, as you say, gave you a sense of, of the, the abolition movement. You know, when they get to the North, they are essentially convinced to become part of uh, these speaking tours 
going yeah, around. Yeah, it's crazy. Try, you know, they just escaped the most traumatic of circumstances, and they are, and they are almost immediately, you know, convinced to to go around and start talking about their experiences in order to raise money and get people on the side of abolition. And finally, it is almost sort of it's a not almost it is a love story between these two people who made this amazing journey and and were only able to succeed because of the connection that they had. So Gilbert, very quickly, I'm going to cover a book that I wished had been on it. And I'm going to have you cover a book that you wished had been on it. So the book I'm going to pick is American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal by Neil King, who was a Wall Street journalist. And he decided as a result of the pandemic, as a result of having had cancer, decides to walk from Washington, D.C., his house, to New York, and on the way to discover what America really is right now. And Ramble is about his allowing serendipity to meet people. He anchored the walk by going to historic places, not necessarily well-known. And Neil King's gentle nature and beautiful writing has created a book that whether you're 14 or 104, I think is important for us to read. He just has a way of exploring our psyche at the time that he's coming to deal with his own potential mortality in a way that's just exquisite, just exquisite. So that's my book that I wished was on the list. What's yours? I will say this is this is a book that I really loved. I I, I don't want to undermine my staff by saying, I wish this was on the list. Why did you okay, not put it on the all list? Right. I will I'll say take this that is, back. Like, no, 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 no. Um, if it was anyone else, uh, I'll say this is a book I, I loved and I'm, I'm sure you've seen it fly off your shelves. It's The Wager. It's David Grand's yeah. the, the Wager. I am a sucker for David Grand, who's one of the great Narrative nonfiction writers at The New Yorker, very well known by this point for Killers of the Flower Moon, the film version of which is out now and, and the paperback of which I'm, I'm pretty sure has been selling fairly well over the past many months. He wrote The Lost City of Z. He's written a lot of tales of, of, of adventure and crime and daring do and, and all this stuff. He wrote an amazing piece for The New York years ago about hunting for a giant squid. But this one, The Wager, is about a shipwreck essentially that happens in 1742 off the coast of Patagonia. It's a British man of war, the HMS Wager, the surviving sailors. I say surviving because so many of them die off during the the trip from England to Patagonia because of scurvy and all these other reasons. The surviving sailors have to figure out how how to stay alive on this desolate, cold, isolated, depressing spit of land until they can be rescued. There's some other stuff that happens. I don't want to ruin the book entirely, but it's, it's if you like ships, if you like shipwrecks, if you like adventure, <laughs> if you love the movie Master and Commander, I don't know. It's just, it, it, it was right up my alley. So I so enjoyed it. All right. Well, Gilbert, sadly, we've run out of time. I mean, I I could be in conversation with you for a long time and I hope uh, that we'll be able to get you back on just the right book. But I want to thank you for 
joining us. We've been talking with Gilbert Cruz, the editor of the New York Times book review. And, you know, I, as a bookseller, as a reader, am enormously grateful for the work that you do at the New York Times book review. It generates books for me to read. It's how I found the postcard by Anne Barrest from the New York Times a book review, and it's what helps our customers. And we can say, now nah, that review's not right, or it is right, but it's, it's always great for all of us that are just voracious readers. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on, and I, I look forward to the next time I, I pass through uh, R.J. Julia. Great. Thanks so much, Gilbert. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio, produced by Roxanne Cody and Michael Selleck. Our editor is Gino Cordone at PleasantPodcast.com. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email me any comments, suggestions, observations. We would love to hear from you. Email me at podcast at rjjulia.com. I do hope you will subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Just the Right Book Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.